book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, chapter 16. 1 Samuel, chapter 16. It should be on the overhead as well, but if you have your Bible, please turn with me to that chapter. We're going to begin at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. See, God's the chooser. He's the decider. And He has narrowed it down to the sons of Jesse. Verse 2, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And that's indeed what he was going to do. Verse 3, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord had commanded and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to me with to the sacrifice. And he consecrated, he particularly chose, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. Next best choice. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, Then Jesse made Shammah pass by another son. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made all of his sons, the seven of his sons, pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? In other words, the least likely, the uncomely candidate, he did not even invite to this consecration feast for the selection of one of his sons. And it goes on to say, and he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. That's the first identification about him, the first character reference about this individual. Verse, and reading on. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. That means fresh looking. He had, a be- he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. It's not said too often of very many of males in the Bible. It is said oftentimes about certain females, but rare is it It's looks described of a man in this fashion. You think of, um, well, I won't mention all the other ones, but we'll leave it at that. 
And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let me say something first. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Do you remember the Psalm 51? When David prayed after his fall, he said, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. This is the Holy Spirit that was given to Samuel on the day of his anointing, his inauguration into the kingship. And that's what sustained him in his reigning period. He knew that without the Spirit, he would not be able to continue. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Did you ever ask yourself the question, why did God save you? Why did God save you? Let me give you some choices and tell me what you think is probably the primary reason why God saved you. To save you from going to hell? Hallelujah! We can say yes. Heaven is my home. I'm not hell bound. I'm heaven bound. My name's written in the Lamb's book of life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Man, that is good news. Certainly. Why did God save you? Was it for that reason? Secondly, did He save you to liberate you from the bondage of your sins? John 8.32, Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Just prior to that, He talks about that you're in bondage with your sins. But if you know the truth, the truth that is in Jesus, you will be liberated from the power of sin in your life. We are set free. I don't have to do and don't want to do the things that I used to do. Same with you. Nod your head. Say amen. Yes. I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's the liberation we have when the gospel sets us free. Unto him that loved us and set us free from our sins is how Revelation 1 verse 5 should read. Loosed us from our sins. We were bound by nature's night, the hymn writer said. But free grace awoke me from light on, by light from on high. Then legal, sheer, uh, legal fear shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. The Lord my Savior must be. And Jesus saved us from those fears that we once had when we were in bondage. Is the third possibility why God saved you? Is this the priority? To make you happy? To make you joyous? The Bible tells us as believers, happy or blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose transgressions are covered. And we can say that to anybody. If your sins aren't forgiven, if they're not covered by the blood of the Lamb of God, you're really not a happy person. You really don't have joy in rejoicing in your heart. It tells us in Isaiah 61 verse 3 that He will give you beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and He will give you a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. And those are the things that characterized us in our unsaved days. The ashes, the mourning, and the heaviness. But now we have the beauty, we have the joy, and we have the garment of praise. Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. Indeed, that is true. But I think the absolute 
primary purpose for God saving us is so that you and I would be like Jesus. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That is it. When Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Paul says, be like me, like I am, like Christ. Christ is our model. We all with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Changed into His image. We become, as time goes on, it should be more and more like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian's life. More and more like Jesus. That's a true disciple. Jesus' desire is to make Sinners into disciples. I was working this week a little bit on the subject of discipleship. And I was thinking of some of these. I'm going to just pass them on to you quickly. I want to highlight one particularly. But if if you were to sit down one-on-one with somebody to disciple them, let me give you some ideas of things that I think should be communicated. First, to the believer, now we're talking, you you can't disciple an unconverted person, right? They need conversion first. They need the Spirit of God to follow Him. How are you going to follow Him whom you're not in love with? But if you love the Lord, you'll want to keep His commandments. You're going to want to follow Him. You're going to want to praise Him. You're going to want to live for Him. You need to have the Spirit. So the number one thing is to live in the Spirit. Secondly, pray without doubting. Why should we doubt? God promises are true. All in Christ are yea, and in Him, amen. Feed on the Word. Jeremiah says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. Meditate on the things that are good, Paul says to the Philippians. These are discipleship qualifications. Heed the counsel of others. One can't be warm alone in the multitude of counselors, plural. There is safety. You can't make it on your own, brother or sister. If you isolate yourself, you're depriving yourself of body life, of the heat that comes from the family of God that is vital to our survival. Examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Whether you be in the faith, I want to assure myself that I belong to the Lamb of God. I want to review the cross of Calvary and remind myself it was there the Savior died for me. All my sins were laid on Jesus. I want to recall that fervently and frequently. Abstain from fleshly lusts. 1 Peter 2.11 Which war against the soul. Oh yes. It's not all that way. There's the other side of it too. Abstaining from things that will bring you down. Spiritually. Glorify God in your body. Man, our bodies can, can corrupt us. We can get into the lust of the flesh and let our body rule over our God-given conscience that He puts within us to serve Him. Glorify God in your body, the Scripture says. Confess your sins as a believer. There's no one that lives that doesn't sin, the Bible says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 
Truly the penalty of my sins has been paid, but the power of sin is still lurking at the door and we need to be able to resist that. And when we do fall, praise the Lord, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and we can call upon Him for ongoing forgiveness for communion with Him. Spread the Gospel. The Bible says that the disciples went everywhere preaching or evangelizing the Word of God. Tell others about Jesus. If you've got Him in your life, He's made a difference in your life, tell somebody about Him. Tell them what He's done for you. And you'll be surprised how it will affect you. The Bible says a liberal soul shall be made fat and he that waters shall be watered himself. When you spread the gospel, you're hearing your own words about the gospel and it's, it's edifying your own soul. Another one is, and maybe the greatest of them all, is to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that doesn't take place just when we come together to break bread. It shouldn't take place just when the church comes together like the two or three are gathered, but it should be something that's 24 hours a day, so to speak. It's something that we should always have on our mind. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 34 in verse number 1. And then one that I did leave out, one that I would like to emphasize for our purposes this morning which leads me into where I want to go with you this morning, and that is where it's, I have written here, follow the example of godly people. You know, if you just read the Scriptures and had no communion with any fellow believers, you might think that this is an ideal that can't be reached. You would somehow be somewhat inhibited, somewhat I say, But when you have an example before your eyes, when you see a changed life, when you know somebody who's who's loving the Lord and living for the Lord, and that has the joy of the Lord in their heart, that's someone worthy of following. We have not only living people that we can follow, but those who died in the faith we can also follow. We have examples in the Bible of people And let me give you an example. In Hebrews 11, listen to some of these. And I had asked myself the question, since I'm going to talk to you about David this morning, I asked myself the question, is David's name mentioned in Hebrews 11? What would you have thought? I know you're going to say, yeah, it must be because I'm going to talk about David. I'm going to read Hebrews 11. You're right. But I I said, I think he is mentioned in Hebrews 11. He doesn't get the same mentioning like Noah does who says about how he built an ark. Or about Abraham, how he left the Ur of the Chaldees. But it says it in this context, let me read. When Paul gives a list of people of faith, and then he says, What more can I say? For the time won't allow me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He would love to go on and on and on about all of them. But he just summarizes their actions in the following words. He says, Who through faith, if you don't have faith, you can do nothing, you can do nothing. Without me, without faith in Jesus, you can't do anything for him. Through faith, it says what? They conquered kingdoms. See, faith is an active virtue within us 
that creates activity. Through faith conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. David is listed among the Gideons, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, and the prophets. He is categorized here as one who did these things. Maybe some may apply specifically to some rather than others, but I think the author is summarizing this is the life of faith. And here are some of the ones that I'm going to tell you that did all of these things. I want to select David out of this list. We did a couple, about a year or two ago maybe, we did the life of, of, of Abraham. Abraham, we said his name was mentioned 72 times in the New Testament. Second to someone else, Moses. 80 times his name is mentioned in the New Testament. When you come across someone mentioned that often, we ought to know something about that individual. And the third one that's the most mentioned is David. And his name is mentioned 54 times in the New Testament. And his name is mentioned more, I believe, than anyone else in the Old Testament. And that is David's mentioning in the Old Testament is 935 times. Why is David so important? He's a predecessor to the ultimate king. David is going to become the substitute replacement for Saul, but down the road there's a greater king that's going to be promised through him. It says, uh, says in Psalm 132, the Lord has sworn unto David, to the, uh, has sworn in truth to David, of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. Jesus is said to be the seed of three different people in the Scriptures. The seed means the offspring of. Not the immediate offspring necessarily, but a future offspring particularly. The three offsprings or seeds that Jesus is said to be of is Mary, the woman, Abraham, to whom the promises were made, and to David. So Jesus is of the seed of the woman, He's of the seed of Abraham, and He's also of the seed of David. David happened to be anointed three different times. Right here in this chapter, by Samuel, and then later by those in Jerusalem, and later by those in Hebron. Total 40 years of reigning as king, as an anointed one. Jesus too was anointed three times, you could say. At His birth, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb, baptized with the Holy Spirit at His, uh, at his water baptism, when the Spirit came upon Him, I wouldn't call that the baptism of the Spirit to Jesus, but the Spirit was poured out on Jesus, anointed, so to speak, at His inauguration into the Messianic category, which is what He was. And then lastly, He was anointed at the Father's right hand, receiving the promise of the Father, and with that promise of the Spirit, He then gives it to His people, the church below here on the earth. I said before that his first mention is that he keeps the sheep. Think about it. Now, God is going to choose a king. A man who's after his own heart. Saul was the people's choice. 
Now it's God's turn to do the choosing. Notice some of the contrast here we'll get to in a second. Saul, the first king, what was the first thing mentioned about him? He was looking for what? Lost sheep. Or rather, lost donkey. With David, it says that his first reference about him, he was keeping the sheep. Donkey versus sheep, obvious. Keeping versus lost, obvious. David is young. He's of a small stature. Saul was just the opposite. He was a trained military figure whose height was above the head and shoulders of others. David, we get the impression when Goliath calls him your little squirt, so to speak, what are you doing coming out to fight me? What a contrast. Saul was the people's choice. David was the father's choice. I'm going to ask one of the brothers to come up front for a second. Here, Michael Payne, would you come up front for a second? Um, just stand next to me over here. Um, the Bible says right there, the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. So let's look at the outward appearance for a moment. I want you to look at Mike and look at me. And... If Mike and I were to get in a wrestling match, which one would be the underdog? You're looking at him right here. The guy with the microphone. If we were in a contest of having to do the most push-ups, who do you think would win? You got it right. If you want to challenge me later, no problem. Guess which one of us took... Ballerina lessons in high school. Neither of us. Which ones do you think, which one do you think was a lifeguard? We both were. Which one do you think was in a fashion show? Yes, I was in a fashion show once. I don't think you ever were, were you right? See, you were right in that one. And the last one is, Guess who likes candy the most? That, that's an inside joke. But you know, you look at the outward appearance, and we always do this. We look at each other, we kind of size people up by the way they dress, how they comb their hair, how they color their hair maybe, or how much makeup they put on, the kind of jewelry they wear, how tall, how short, the body mass. We could go on and on. We all bear outward characteristics. It is a normal thing to be looking at the outward appearance and forming a judgment. It's almost unavoidable. Jesus does say to judge, look not on the outward appearance, he says, but judge righteous judgment. So we have to curb our maybe instinctive judgment and balance that. But, you know, we look on the outward appearance, and that means something to us. You don't have to go away yet, because I have one more. Uh, and don't, 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 don't get too nervous here. Um, it's not because I'm only hot, but I am. Um, now, which one of us two do you think 
loves the Lord the most. Okay? Now that's something you can't judge, right? You know why you can't? Because the Bible tells us where the Lord looks and what, me, what it means to Him. And I want the children to see this. The Lord looks on the heart, right? Okay, Mike, you're dismissed. Now, just so I don't kind of freak you out, um, I've got my second uh, apparel ready. The outward appearance. No one would have chosen David. He was the last choice. Do you ever wonder why God chose you? Why did God choose Isaac over Ishmael? Jacob over Esau? David over his seven brothers? Why you over maybe an unsaved family member that you may have in your household? We don't have answers for that. The Lord, though, does look at the heart. You know, the Bible uses the word heart over and over again and how significant it is. Now, the heart really is not shaped like that. Children, don't, don't get confused by my picture, but I think you got the point. But a heart, really, believe it or not, is about the size of a clenched fist. A heart, that organism, is only in weight about 11 ounces. That heart can't be the heart that the Lord looks at. He doesn't look at a muscle organ in our body that's particularly geared to pump blood through the circulatory system of our bodies. So what does it mean for the Lord to look on the heart? The heart is the real you. The Bible talks about the outward man and the inward man. And I don't know that you could actually dissect your body and pull out the you out of you. But I think all of us realize that we have a within and a without. Jesus said, Did not he that made that without make that also that is within? Luke 11 verse 40. So there isn't a without and a within. And it's the within that the Lord looks at. Praise God. At once, as the hymn writer says, My heart was black with sin until the Savior came in. His precious blood, I know, it washed me white as snow. Now my heart is clean. It's washed. No stain remains. Praise the Lord for the Gospel. Ezekiel says, A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Before our conversions, we had a stoned heart. A heart of stone, rock-solid heart. But at conversion, when the Lord saves us, we get a new heart. I was listening to, a, I think it was a TED Talk, if I'm not mistaken. No, it wasn't. It was a, a Christian radio program broadcasting about organ donations and so on and talking about the pros and the cons, so to speak, about that. And it made me think of this, this in preparing for this message. In proof that your heart is not the you of, uh, that the Bible talks about when it talks about the heart. The heart is really the inward part. It's the, the crevice of your being. So that, for instance, if you did donate your heart, you're a believer, right? You've got a new heart from the Lord. If you got died and donated your 
hot to somebody and it was translated into the, transplanted into their body, would that mean that, that they're righteous now because they got a heart of the spirit rather than a heart of stone, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone? Of course not. Hopefully that clarifies the idea that it's not the heart muscle that is what God looks at, but He does look at us on the inward parts. Matthew Henry says we can look how, we can tell how people look, but only He can tell what they are. Samuel needed to know that this is the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's choice. He had said earlier in the 13th chapter about Saul that I have rejected him from being king because he did not keep his my commandments, but I have sought a man after my own heart. I don't know if there's an expression in the Scriptures hardly that could tell us more about someone who's consecrated to God. A person who has a heart after God. Remember, Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve and he had fallen by transgression He was out of the apostleship ministry. He was not a part of the twelve anymore. But for the sake of testimony, that twelfth one, Judas Iscariot, had to be replaced. You recall that at the end of Acts chapter 1. So there's two candidates. And do you remember, in the Old Testament, this would happen a lot. When it came to choosing one over the other, what would they do? Flip a coin. Take a, cast a lot. Matter of fact, the Whitfield and, and Wesley used to practice that for a while in the early ministry when it came to what to do at times. They would flip a coin and then let that be God's will, whatever it happened to, however it happened to land. Well, what the apostles do, and this is really what matters most after the two were, 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 were brought in, I believe, by Lot. And then, what does Peter say in his prayer? Thou Lord who knowest what the hearts of all men, bring to the front, so to speak, who you want. And it was Justice and Matthias. And it was Matthias was the one whose heart must have been after the heart of God like David's was after the heart of God. Lord, which one? You know the hearts of all men. We can't evaluate this person based on their outward appearance. Two good candidates outwardly but Lord, you know the hearts. Now, this isn't a matter of saving one and damning the other. It's just, this is a matter of choosing one for the sake of service in furthering the gospel of the kingdom. Sometimes, you know, we can pretend to be what we are not on the outside when we're very different on the inside. Man, that is scary. That is really scary. That scares me. I don't want to pretend to be something that I'm not to you. Or to anybody else. And sometimes I think you like me would say, I'm a hypocrite. I know better than that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't act that way. Abraham Lincoln said, you can fool all the people some of the time. And some of the people all the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time. I don't know if we're trying to fool one another. I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that. I hope not. I, I want to be true to myself before the Lord. 
That's why the scripture says to examine ourselves. The psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Man, that is an open-faced prayer. I think if each of us had that desire to say, God, correct what's wrong in me. Make me discover the sin in my life or the folly in my way so that it can be exposed not only before you, which it is, but also before me so that I can know the way in which He wants to lead me. After all, He is the Creator. Henry Ford, who created the Model T Ford, um, it had some kinks in it at the beginning when this uh, automobile was put on the road and it was amazing back in like the 1910 era or so, 1908, somewhere around, around that time. And someone had bought one of his Model T's there in Detroit, uh, the Piston City. And uh, one, one of the individuals who bought it happened to break down on the road and uh, had no idea what to do. And it was just, just sitting there on the side of the road, puzzled, tried every little thing. Nothing could happen, but guess what? Mr. Ford came walking down, came driving down the street in his Model T, and he saw his other Model T that he had made broken down on the side of the road. So, Mr. Ford, this is a true story, went up to his, the vehicle that he was the creator of. He opened up the hood, he got a tool out of his vehicle, he went over to the Model T, opened up the hood went into the motor and with a simple screwdriver just made a minor adjustment and bingo, the car started up and took off. Well, you know, the Lord is our creator. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Sometimes we're broken down on the side of the road and we don't know what to do. Well, we can go to the Lord about that and say, Lord, fix me. Help me to understand myself. Show me my folly. And we can count on God that He will do that. The heart is the fountain of life. It tells us in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You're not maybe who your actions indicate who you are, but you are where your heart is at. That's who you are. That's how God knows us from the inside out, not from the outside in. Search me, O God. It tells us about the Scriptures, and one way we can be searched is Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is life-giving and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and of spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You want to know about your heart, where you're at? And I'm not saying this to condemn any, any of you brothers or sisters. I think it's just a matter of getting conformed to the image of His Son. It's wanting to be like Jesus. If He loved me unto death, even the death of the cross, we need to say like the hymn writer, that demands my heart, my life, my all. I want to love the Lord in some measure the way He loved me. Shouldn't that be our ambition and our desire? If Christ died for you, as the Bible says, He died for all that they which live, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him who died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5.14 That's what we want to do. We want to believe in the One who died for us that motivates to, us to want to live for Him. God looks 
on the heart. We know that our heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. Who can know it? By nature it is desperately wicked. But the promise is a new heart I will give you. So we don't have to think of ourselves in some sort of a condemning way and always sort of belittling ourselves in putting ourselves down below where God has raised us up. We want to think about ourselves the way God thinks about us. And we do that humbly. We do that with gratitude that the Lord would have such mercy upon me that He would bring me into the household of faith, that He would put a ring on my finger, He would put shoes on my feet, He would put a garment of salvation around me and say, the fatted calf is ready, come and let us make and be merry. That's the kind of gratitude that we want to extend to the Lord after knowing what He has done for us. God says, I am selecting a man who is after my own heart. I guess you could say maybe today's sermon might be better titled is, How is your heart? How would that be evaluated? Some of you, and I have been, to a cardiologist to have our heart examined, to see, you know, how things are moving there in our, in our circulatory system, how our, our heart is functioning, functioning the aorta and, and our blood, blood pressures and so on and so forth. But let's go to the cardiologist today, the Lord, and say, Lord, you know my heart, you know my inward thoughts. Is it a heart for you? And I know if you're a child of God, you love the Lord. You have to love the Lord. You can't do anything other than loving the Lord. Maybe you've left your first love. Maybe it's become sort of cooled because of various things in your life that has cluttered your life. And like, like a gutter that gets the, the, the water backed up because things are blocking it. There's some hindrances. So too we can have things in our life, like in our heart, that could block the passageway for the Lord to work in us and through us and make us channels of blessing. I want to close. And, and Nick, could you put this on the overhead? And I think, let's just close this way. I think we can all read this together uh, as a prayer almost uh, for ourselves. These are the words of Solomon that was given to David. Um, excuse me. David said this to Solomon his parting words to him, I think would be the parting words to us. So you can stay seated, but follow me, would you? Would you read along with me? And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will cast you off forever. First Chronicles 28, verse 9 in the English Standard Version. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we ask You, Lord, that we would be freshly reminded about the work of the Lord Jesus. For the love, O oh God, that You've had toward us in sending Your only begotten Son to bleed and die in our room instead, to pay a penalty, Lord, that we could have never paid on our own. Oh God, we have been delivered from a horrible pit. We have been given joy. We have been liberated. But Lord, we know that Your ultimate desire for us is for us to be conformed to the image of Your dear Son. 
Lord, give us a heart that would beat for You, Lord, that would imitate You. Help us to follow the Lord Jesus with a close proximity that, Lord, we would bring You glory and honor and praise. And for anyone, Lord, in this room that does not have a new heart, we ask, Lord, that it would please You to convict them of their sins, open the eyes of their understanding, give them a a vision of the cross to behold the Lamb and to understand the Gospel that the blood of Jesus was for the remission of their sins if they believe from their heart the Gospel. Thank You, Lord, for having cleansed us and washed us and made us new. May it be so for others here in this room that have not yet come into the family of God. Have mercy upon them, deliver them, and save them. Now, Lord, bless this day to us as we look to You for the coming week. And we ask, Lord, that we would have on the whole armor of God, that we would have... uh, bearing in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. So, Lord, we just commend ourselves to You, Lord. Thank You that we can trust You for the days ahead, knowing, Lord, that You are patient with us, You are caring, You are loving, and Your desire is for our good and not for our bad. Receive our praise, O Lord, and thanks in the precious and worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.